Well, we're returning today to our study of the book of Leviticus, um, which might be the most boring book in the Bible, but it'll be worth your time today. If I, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Micah, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are in the middle of a study of the first five books of Leviticus, uh, which outline uh, the different offerings, the different tabernacle and temple offerings, but we've been specifically uh, applying uh, those offerings to the problem of shame. There's a real connection between the offerings and and the struggle with shame. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into Leviticus chapter 3. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people and and to dive into your word. And Lord, uh, before we dive into this chapter, we confess that we need your word. We need you to communicate to us. Every uh, letter, every word in this Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God. It comes from you. It comes out from you. You breathe it out. And we know what's on the inside of you is perfect and good and right. And so we view this as a gift from you. And so, Lord, as we dive into this passage, and, and so much of it, it seems so foreign to us, sacrifices and animals and burning things up and how to cut up an animal, all these different things, uh, they seem so foreign to us. But Lord, I pray that we would do the work today to really uh, understand this passage, but understand how not only what it meant to those Old Testament saints, but what it means to us today, what theological truths and spiritual truths are in here for us today. Lord, help us to understand your word and live it out. Lord, we also Uh, confess and profess that we need your spirit to do that and so Lord we ask that you would send your spirit that he would fill this room that he would do the work that only he can do of opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel to uh, giving us faith where we lack trust in you of maybe shining the light of the gospel in those dark corners of our heart that we need to repent of and and believe you So, Lord, do a good work in our hearts today. And finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, Danny was a pastor's kid, and so that meant he knew all the good, the bad, and the ugly of a church. He was musical, and he loved being in the worship band. He would, uh, his church had a choir. I wish we had a choir, but he would sing in the choir Um, And he also uh, was just kind of a fun kid. And so uh, when he was younger, you know, when they would do VBS, he was always up for the fun stuff and loved VBS. He was always there for camp and these different fun activities. However, he also saw that people were at times pretty critical of his father and he saw how, you know, what all that did. He also uh, saw his father be pretty critical of others and, you know, it was a regular thing. He said that, you know, his parents would come home after church on a Sunday afternoon and just kind of go down the list of all the things that were wrong and all the, you know, things that they could have done and missed opportunities, all of those things. He also periodically, like every church, had uh, buddies that would, their family would leave the church uh, sometimes, and and sometimes it was because they got mad at their dad, and he wondered if maybe they had a point. He saw the, how the proverbial sausage was made from an early age, and he kind of decided from an early age that, okay, I'm going to take the fun stuff, but I'm not going to be like too spiritual. I'm not going to be like too religious. Like, if, if you pushed him... You know, Danny was honest. You know, he's, hey, I believe in Jesus, accepted Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. Those theological boxes were checked for him. 
However, Danny's struggle was is that he, he really didn't have a thriving spiritual life. He didn't take those theological truths that he knew and, and really apply them to his deepest struggles. And the older Danny got, he had uh, some, some real manifestations of struggles with shame. Danny was smaller than most of the boys in his class, and he wasn't very athletic, and he got picked on a lot for just kind of being too small, being too slow. Some guys uh, told him that he was kind of girly, and, and he just felt like he never fit in with the guys at school. He felt like he was different. He felt like he was left out. And a lot of that led to just some real deep uh, struggles, major struggles with shame. And so there were seasons of his life where he just went just nose, just nosedived into, into just deep struggles with shame and depression. And then that would be followed with these really manic moments where he would do things that were just kind of crazy and sometimes even dangerous. He, he, he just wanted to feel alive. He also wanted to feel accepted. And again, if you asked Danny, had you accepted Jesus into your heart? He would say yes. And he believed God existed. He believed he was going into heaven. He really believed the cross. He believed all these gospel truths. But again, he wasn't really applying them to some of his deepest struggles in life. And so he was really in bondage to shame. He had a theological grounding, but he did not have a thriving spiritual life. The solution to the problem of shame, it needs to have a, a theological grounding. There needs to be these, these theological truths that we can build our lives upon. But it also needs these spiritual habits or spiritual tools to go with that uh, theological grounding if we're really going to overcome these struggles with shame. So we need both truth and we need tools. Now, if you're new with us on this study of Leviticus, we've been looking at these different offerings and, and that first one, that first offering from Leviticus 1, really provided the theological truth for finding a solution to shame. Last week and this week are providing what I'll call spiritual tools to help us kind of daily battle against shame. Now, if you're new with us on this series or you're new to the book of Leviticus, the, the book of Leviticus is dealing with all these Old Testament sacrifices. There were these series of offerings that they would make in the Old Testament, and this was part of their worship. Now, for us, worship is coming to church and singing, and there was an aspect of that. So as they walked up to Jerusalem, maybe in the, in the Psalms, you've read the Psalms of a and that's what that was, as they walked up or ascended up to Jerusalem, they would sing these beautiful psalms. But this was also an aspect of their worship. That going up to the tabernacle and later the temple and making these offerings. And these offerings had you know, specific purpose that they made them. But all of this was part of their worship. Now, the book of Leviticus and this whole sacrificial system... It's all, there's a key verse that helps us understand what's going on there. The key verse of the book of Leviticus, and it's, and it's throughout the book of Leviticus. It's not just one time, but it's this call to be holy as I am holy. God's calling us to be holy. We're not holy. And so the sacrificial system is to help bridge that gap, to help us to move from unholy or unclean to cleanliness or to holiness. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. How do we move from being unclean not being able to be accepted by God, not being able to be in the presence of God, and then move to this category of accepted and cleanliness. Now, Leviticus 1 dealt with the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was what it sounded like. You would take this animal and it would be completely burned up. And there was this rhythm, as you read Leviticus 1, where it was supposed to be an unblemished animal. 
But the worshiper would place their hands on the animal, and they were, they were blemished. The animal was unblemished, and so they were transferring their sin onto the animal. That animal served as a substitute for them, and thus that animal became this atoning sacrifice for them. It was paying their debt of sin. And so what's going on there is God accepted them based upon the burnt offering, based upon that atonement of the animal. Now, if you're thinking, okay, there's links to the cross there, you're thinking correctly. That's this foreshadowing, if you will, of what the cross is. Christ is this atonement for us now, and thus that's how we're accepted by God. That's the theological grounding of any struggle with shame in your life, is that you have been accepted by God. Now, that gets kind of to the definition or the understanding of shame that we've wrestled with. Shame is this belief that you're unaccepted. You're unaccepted in some way. You're a loser. You're not good enough. She uh, broke up with you. He doesn't like you anymore. Whatever it is, you're not good enough. You're unacceptable. But the gospel says you're accepted based upon my atonement. So the ultimate solution for this problem of shame where you believe you're unacceptable and then you have all these feelings of shame that follow, it's grounded in this theological truth that you're accepted through atonement. However, God goes further and gives us these spiritual tools to battle that shame daily. Last week, we looked at Leviticus 2 and the grain offering. And the grain offering was in response to the burnt offering where they would bring grain, burn it up. And it was this, this uh, moment where they were grateful for the atonement and they were vowing to faithfully follow the Lord as a result of it. So they maybe had lived their life not according to that atonement, not according to believing that they'd been accepted through atonement, but now they were committed to faithfully following the Lord. Leviticus 3, we're going to look at a third offering. This is the peace offering. And what this teaches us is that uh, we are to dedicate ourselves to communion. Your first blanks on there from these first five verse, verses are to believe communion is a solution to shame. Let me read the first five verses. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them at their loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire, it is a food offering with, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Like these first two chapters, Leviticus 3 is just offering the instructions for the peace offering. This is how to carry out the peace offering. Now, if you're looking at the chapter, it, it's divided into three sections. And the three sections, you know, they're kind of saying the same thing over and over. But the difference is, is there's, there's different animals used. So these first verses, it talks about how to offer a peace offering using cattle. The next section is using sheep. And then the third section is using goats. But the gist of it is, is they bring these animals, they burn them up. They burn them up as this peace offering. And in the end, there's this repetition of a phrase that it is, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, maybe at some level it smelled good, but really what's going on there is that this uh, offering was acceptable to the Lord. He accepted their offering. Now, the essence of the peace offering is probably easy to figure out. It, pro it, it provides peace. Where there was not peace, there's now peace. So where there was brokenness or, or some sort of divide, some sort of lack of peace, there's now peace. 
Now, now there's, this is a voluntary vow or thanksgiving offering are the categories of it. So people are, are recognizing, okay, I don't have peace with God in some way. And this it works to establish peace with God. So they're establishing peace in order to have communion with God. Now, the end of this uh, offering is a meal, which is a great symbol of communion. So, so think of when you've had a broken relationship with somebody. Like you're not talking, somebody did something, but then you're reconciled. You, you come to a peace with each other. Well, what happens after that? Well, then you start talking more. Like before, you just weren't talking, you weren't answering phone calls. You certainly weren't, you know, going to lunch together. But then you start talking again. The relationship improves. And then what ends up happening, you end up having lunch again with them, right? That's kind of a similar reality of going on, what's going on here. There was a lack of peace. Now there's peace. It leads to communion, and it results in this meal. The Old Testament idea of peace is maybe you've heard the term shalom. This is this uh, Hebrew term that talks about wholeness or completeness. This is a similar term here, that, that peace is, it, it, there's brokenness or lack of completeness in some way. It, and, it, and it links um, uh, this brokenness or something that is unfinished. And with this offering, it now maybe completes the circle or, or fixes what was wrong. Things that were not as they should be are now as they should be. That's what's going on in the peace offering. Peace is established. Now, if you want, we're digging down deep into some of this, but there is a couple of uh, examples of peace offerings in the Old Testament. The first one is from Jacob from Genesis 28. And this is that famous offering at Bethel where he confesses his faith in the Lord, confesses his commitment and belief in the covenant, and then he commits to faithfully following the Lord in his covenant, and then he makes a tithe offering, makes a vow to that. If you remember the story of uh, uh, Samuel before he's born, Hannah's unable to have a child, and, and there's a peace offering that her husband is making. And in that moment, uh, she asks the Lord to provide a child for her. And if, and if he does, she'll give this child to the Lord. And then that's what happens when Samuel's born. Then we know that uh, Hannah gives him to the priest, and Eli raises him uh, in the temple. But all of there, there's the peace offering that is on the background of that. So again, the, the peace offering is all about setting things right. There, there's a problem that needs to be fixed. There, there's a, a sin. There's an unclean cleanliness that then needs to, to be clean. There's something that needs to be completed or set right, and the peace offering is meant to do that. Now, okay, that's maybe Old Testament stuff. We don't make peace offerings anymore, but the link for us today is it's dealing with this problem of being unaccepted, i.e. it's dealing with this problem of shame. If shame is the idea of you believe you're unaccepted, and then you have feelings of unacceptance, you feel like a loser, you feel like a fool, you feel rejected based upon what you believe about if you're accepted or not, then we're in the realm of talking about shame. And friends, if you're anything like me, that shame can hold you in real bondage, right? Like maybe you've done something sinful from the past and your flesh or the devil, man, continues to bring that up and make accusations of you. Hey, you're just that guy who looked at that video. Or you're just that person who said that awful thing to someone else. You're, that's all that you are. That's all you're ever going to be. That shame can accuse us of all these awful things, right? And, and then we're in bondage from it. We just feel unacceptable. We, we don't step out in faith and bold things. As, man, I, I couldn't teach the preschool class because, man, it, if they had known what I said last Tuesday, it, it just haunts us, doesn't it? But see, the solution to that, the solution of feeling unaccepted, is believing that you are, in fact, accepted. 
Jesus has atoned for your sins. You're one of his. You're an adopted child of, of his. Sometimes we feel shame because we just feel excluded. Maybe that girl dumped us. Maybe that boy doesn't want to date us anymore. Maybe that team doesn't want us. They don't think we're good enough for them. Maybe that college doesn't accept us that we really want to get into. We, we feel excluded. We feel like we're not good enough, like we're never going to be good enough. Maybe it's not necessarily something we've done wrong, but we're never going to be good enough. We just feel foolish. Again, going back to that theological truth, you are accepted based upon his atonement. That's the theological grounding. That's the, the theological solution, if you will, of the problem of shame. Now listen, we're in Leviticus and talking Old Testament. But, but today we live on this side of the cross, right? And we know that our atonement is based upon Christ. Like we have a, a better, uh, we have a, a better thing that was sacrificed, better than cattle and sheep and goats. We have Christ who was sacrificed for us. So we are accepted based upon him. I don't care how good or how bad you've been. That's not the basis of your acceptance. That's not the basis of your inclusion into his family. It's based upon what he has done for you. He has atoned for you. He did it out of love. He did it out of his, his sovereign love, knowing who you are, knowing all the junk that you would do, and he atoned for you anyways and brought you into his family. He's moved you from an enemy to a beloved, adopted child of God. That's what our acceptance is based upon. Now, we're to dedicate ourselves to live according to that. We're to, we are to live our lives believing that is true. That's the first way that Leviticus 2 gives us on, on how to battle shame. Leviticus 3 gives us this second tool, and that is to commune with God. To get to that place where you're having that fellowship meal with Him. To move from atonement and, and to move into this place where you're at peace with each other. Peace to the degree that the relationship is store, restored and you're having a meal with him. You're to commune with him. Communion is the spiritual solution today from Leviticus 3 of how to battle shame. When you deal with those, those false beliefs that I'm just a loser, I'm nothing, I'm totally unacceptable, I'm totally unworthy. You're to run to communion to Christ to find healing in those moments. Believe that communion is a solution to shame. I want to make this maybe a little more personal. Jesus is a person. Your second blank is commune with your best friend, Jesus, when you're overcome with shame. Commune with your best friend, Jesus, when you're overcome with shame. Let me read 6 to 11. If his offering for a sacrifice, a, a peace offering to the Lord, is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the, side, the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. Again, there's repetition here, but the purpose of this is to be a vow or confession. Something is not complete 
and, and we're vowing to complete it. Something We have some sort of need from God and we're asking God to fulfill it. We have a sin that we need to confess. We're confessing it to him. So the purpose of this is to now have peace where we didn't have peace. Whatever kept us from peace, it is now being completed. Now there's some similar things to this offering to the previous two offerings. Number one, it was optional. It wasn't mandatory like the ones, the two we're going to look at next week. It also was similar in that it produced this pleasing aroma to the Lord, which again meant that he was accepting it. It was distinct in that uh, this offering was sporadic. It, it, was, it was kind of based upon a particular need, but it was also distinct, especially from the uh, burnt offering, in that the worshiper and the priest and and in, in, in a sense, God then eats a portion of this meal. There's, there's a celebratory meal that comes from this. And before we get to the meal, you're probably thinking, kidneys, fat, what's going on here? Um, you know, when we eat a steak, like the fat's not the good portion, right? Like we want to cut that off. This is a different time. The fat is considered like the good portion of it. So, so there's a sense of them giving God their best. Also, something similar is going on with the kidneys. Kidneys were, were understood to be kind of like vital to life. And so in a similar way, it was kind of giving God their best, okay? But this was, the, the, the result of this was, okay, we're to give God our best, and then we're to celebrate uh, th- this peace that we have now with God with a meal. And again, the worshipers, the priests, God, all partook of this meal. This is probably e- easy to imagine, but way back when in the Old Testament, this was like a celebratory moment. They didn't eat a lot of meat. And so this was, this was a high, happy moment where they were grateful to God for the peace that they had with him. So in response to God's graciously atoning for their sin, making peace with them, they were then celebrating. A lot's going on in that meal, but, but they're celebrating all sorts of things. But it, but it really traces back to the purpose of that offering as to why they're celebrating. Like they might be celebrating the completion of a significant vow, and thus they're celebrating God's goodness. They, they might have been celebrating that they had some sort of sin that was keeping them from God, and and thus God has now forgiven them of their sin. They might have been celebrating that God has fulfilled a a promise to them, but they were celebrating something. But this meal demonstrated that things were right now in the relationship. They're accepted. They're, They're right now with God, and thus they can enjoy communion with God. Thus they were happy. Thus they were hopeful. Again, that kind of now gets to this link between this problem of shame. When we have these bouts of shame, we're to remember that, listen, we're supposed to go enjoy a meal with God in order to be right with him. When we struggle with shame, when those memories pop up into our mind again, we're to rely upon our relationship with God to help us in those moments. When, When we're tempted to maybe believe the devil or believe our flesh that we're unacceptable or that we're foolish or that we're a loser in some way, we're to run to God to help in those moments. There's a lot of things that can help us in those moments, but ultimately we're to run to God to help us in those moments. You're to find hope and healing in those covenant meals with the Lord. Psalm 46, one, where he is our present help in time of trouble. Do you turn to him in your time of trouble? Are you communing with God? Like, like, do you understand it that he's my best friend? And when I'm hurting, when I'm down, when I'm, when, when I'm tempted to believe lies, when, when I'm struggling, do you turn to your best friend? Do you lean on that relationship? Do you even have a relationship with him to lean on? Do you, do you turn to him as your solution? Commune with your best friend Jesus when, you, when you're overcome with shame. Let me take this 
maybe one step further in kind of the practical category and say that we should develop our communion rhythms. Let me read the last section and I'll get to what I mean by that. Develop your communion rhythms. 12 to 17. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering in the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, and he shall remove from the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in your dwelling places that you shall eat neither fat nor blood. Again, this final section, like the other two, just follows the similar pattern, but it's giving instructions about uh, the a peace offering of a goat. But, but the pattern is the same. We have had this theological solution to shame, uh, acceptance through atonement. Then we've been called by the last offering to devote ourselves to faithfully following that truth. And now in this offering, we're, we're called to commune with God as a result of that. If he's truly accepted us, Based upon his atonement, we're called to commune with him. We're we're to move our relationship from lacking peace to having peace resulting in this meal. We're to, I think, make this thing personal in the sense that we are to commune with Jesus here. I, I know we don't sacrifice animals and we don't cut out the fat of an animal and burn it up. But we do experience the result of that. That we're to have this communion meal with him. So when we feel shame, when we feel abandoned, when we feel unaccepted, when we feel left out, the, the tool that we have in our toolbox, the spiritual tool that we have is to, to uh, commune with God, to find our acceptance and satisfaction in our communion with Jesus. As I've wrestled with some of this this week, I've just asked the simple question of, okay, well, well how do we commune with Jesus? Like, what does that mean? What does it really look like practically, functionally, day in, day out, Monday morning, what does it look like to commune with Jesus? The key to communing with Jesus is prayer. If you're not praying, you're not communing with Jesus. Prayer is the key to communion. Tim Keller has a great definition of of prayer um, in his book on prayer where he says that prayer is essentially a genuinely lived relationship with God. Prayer is, is all about communicating with him, it's all about saying these words now, but, but what that is to produce is a relationship. It can, prayer is all about communing with God. It's all about having a relationship with him. It's all about knowing him. Relationships are all about communication, and prayer is the way we communicate with God. Now, we want to be clear that his word is the main way he communicates with us. It's not cloud formations or yoga. It's his word, right? But the way we communicate back to him is through prayer. We, we talk to him. Well, okay, well, what are we supposed to say? John Piper has a helpful quote on this where he says that, um, not only the, that prayer is not only the measure of our hearts revealing what we really desire, it's also the indispensable remedy for our hearts when we do not desire the God the way that we ought to. Now, what he's getting at there is he's saying, listen, prayer is supposed to be genuine. It's supposed to be authentic. Like you're to lay your problems there. You're to talk to him like you would talk to any other friend. 
You, you don't start speaking, you know, King James language when you talk to God. You don't have to learn Latin to talk to God. You talk to him like you would your other friends. You, you lay those burdens there. You're genuine. You're transparent with him. You share your hurts, the deepest hurts of your hearts with him. But then you allow him to then change you. But what does prayer produce? There's a, a great little book that I, I lean on a lot uh, by David Mathis. It's called Habits of Grace, which it just talks a lot about our spiritual disciplines. But he says that prayer is ultimately about having more of God. That's what prayer produces. Friends, your, your prayer may or may not change your circumstances, okay? Like, like you might see this problem and wish this circumstance would change. God, take away my cancer. God, fix this person. Maybe your circumstances change as a result of your prayer. Maybe they don't. But I can guarantee you that what your prayer will produce is a greater relationship with him. You'll get more of him as a result of your prayer. And that's the goal of it, is to get more of him. And that's where prayer is so helpful when we're struggling with shame, right? We're struggling with shame because maybe she rejects me or that school rejects me or that team rejects me, but he accepts me and he is enough. He's better than that team. He's better than that school. He's better than that boyfriend. He is enough. His acceptance of you is enough. It doesn't matter if they reject you. Maybe you're not a good enough pitcher to be on that team, but you're good enough to be with him. He's bought you. He's paid for you. He's accepted you. And so it doesn't matter ultimately if you're on that team or in that school. He has accepted you. And fostering that relationship, walking with him, is how you experience the joy of that relationship with him. He is enough. And that's what prayer produces, more of God. But again, how do we do it? I think this is maybe even more practical and maybe more helpful, but our prayer should be private as well as public. So a, a minute ago, Jeff prayed up here. That was a public prayer. But if you remember from Matthew 6, Jesus talked about some of those public prayers that people would make. And Jeff didn't do this, but back in Jesus' day, you would have people make these you know, verbose prayers, and they would say things the right way and in profound ways, and they would say it loud so everyone could hear it. But the root of that was this religious duty, or the root of that was, was pride. They wanted everybody else to hear it. But you remember, Jesus rebuked them for that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 5, and 6, he calls us not to pray like that, but to go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father in secret. He calls us to not only just a public prayer life, but a private prayer life. He calls us to, to go into that closet. This is where we uh, get the idea of a prayer closet. Maybe you've heard people say, I've got a prayer closet. This, it's from this passage where we're to go in and pray in private to the Lord. Mathis jumps off that passage talking about uh, a private personal prayer life. And, and he gives what I think is some, some good advice. I've given him credit. This is not me. But uh, I just, I find this very helpful. So I wanted to share with you five, five points. This is not, you know, legalistic rules. This is just what I think is good advice for a healthy prayer life. Number one, Mathis says, uh, create your closet. Create your closet. Now, what he means by that is to uh, have that spot, have that time, develop that rhythm, C create your closet. For me, it's on the back porch. There's a labradoodle and coffee involved. Maybe it's an actual closet for you, but find that place, that time, that rhythm. Second, begin with Bible. In other words, don't just start talking, but rather start listening. I think that's great advice. The way God speaks to us is through his word. The way we speak to him is through prayer. Start by listening to him. Let that, let that shape what's going on in your head and in your heart. 
Number three, he says, adore, confess, thank, and ask. Adore, confess, thank, and ask. For about 30 years, I've been using a little acronym that a lot of people do, and Mathis uh, suggested in his book as well. It's the ACTS acronym. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And, and I've found that to be just a, a simple, memorable way to kind of organize my prayers. When I pray, I, I start with adoration, confession. That, that part's longer, sadly, than other spots. Thanksgiving and then supplication. And it just gives some focus to my prayer. It gives, it gives a daily pattern to my prayer. Mathis 4 says, divulge your desires and develop them. In other words, what he's saying is divulge your desires. Like lay your burdens upon the Lord. Remember the first Peter 5, 7? Cast your anxieties upon him. In your prayer life, lay those burdens before him. Lay them out there. Be genuine. Be authentic. But then let God change your desires. He then says develop them. Like let God develop those desires. Maybe you have a desire here, but in your prayer, let him Turn it in the direction that he wants you to go. Let him sanctify you. Fifth and finally, Matthew says, keep it fresh. In other words, change it up. Like, like there's no necessarily set way to do it. I mean, we have some patterns. But we have some wisdom to share. But, but change it up. Maybe change your routine. Change your Bible reading plan. Establish rhythms of a, of, of a retreat of prayer. Maybe you pray consistently, but maybe learn to pray sporadically and, and try that as you drive or as you're going throughout your day. Or, or maybe, you know, carve out a half a day on a Saturday morning where you just go down to the lake and, and you just spend that morning in prayer. Maybe add uh, the discipline of fasting to your prayer life. Change it up in some way. Listen, in the end, Leviticus 3, it's a reminder to develop our rhythms of communion with Jesus. And we need that when we struggle with shame. When you're struggling with that crippling shame, that's not the moment to kind of ramp up a good relationship with God. Develop those rhythms of communion with God so that you're ready when you're really attacked. Talking on communion, 1 Corinthians 10 is, is one of the most important passages in the New Testament on communion. And if you remember what's going on in that context, in the Corinthian church, there's a lot of division. And that's spreading even to that moment of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, or communion. And so Paul rebukes them, right? He rebukes them for having division in their relationships with each other, but also not having unity in their relationship with God. There's just division all over the place. And so he rebukes them in that. He says, listen, communion is about fostering a relationship with each other, and it's about fostering a relationship with God. That's the purpose of communion, is to have this relationship with God, to have this meal with him. This is why he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, what he's doing there is he's taking theological truths. Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was spilt for you. And he's taking it down into these practical spiritual realms. That should lead to unity with Christ. That should lead to better relationships with each other. This theological truth has practical spiritual implications. See, in a similar way, we're no longer unclean. We're no longer unaccepted. We're no longer shameful. Those are the theological truths that we build our lives upon. But there's times when we feel that way. We feel unclean and unaccepted and shameful. And thus we don't live according to those theological truths in that moment. 
As a result, we need to go back to our friendship with Jesus to heal us in those moments. Believe that communion is solution, the solution to your problem of shame. Like commune with your best friend. Make him your best friend. The same way you have these great friendships with other people, where you talk to each other, where you spend time with each other. It's the same thing with Christ. Be authentic with him. Be genuine with him. Foster that friendship. Develop your communion rhythms. I came across a, what I think is a helpful story on a couple of levels this week. Um, there was a young man named Pierre, and he was riddled with shame on a series of, of levels. And that shame really held him in bondage. He, he was a Christian. He was trying to faithfully walk with the Lord. But shame just continued to kind of reach up and grab him. And, and the way it did, I, I think it's helpful for us today. Like, some of that shame was connected to, like, sin struggles that he had. But some of that shame, in kind of a, a strange way, maybe, was connected to maybe virtuous things that he was doing. Pierre was from Haiti, and he was a smart young man, and he was able to get out of Haiti. And I know a number of you have done missionary work in Haiti. A lot of people in Haiti, they're, they're trying to get out. Haiti's a desperate place. And, and Pierre was able to get out. He got to Florida. He settled in Miami. And uh, while he was there, he did what a lot of Haitians do, where they, they send a lot of money back. I mean, there, there's some interesting statistics on the amount of just millions of American dollars that go back into Haiti from Haitians who've come to America. I mean, so many people in Haiti just, just live off that money. And that's what Pierre was doing. But while he was living in Miami, he, he uh, continued to fall back into a series of, of sexual sins. He would have seasons where, you know, he would be doing well and he would be successfully battling it. Then he'd have seasons where he would fall back into it. And it was just this pattern that kept uh, going round and round in his life. He would feel good when he left or he would feel good maybe in the moment partaking of those sexual sins. But it always came with baggage on the other side of it. This baggage of shame where he, where he didn't uh, feel acceptable by God as a result of his sin. Further, and this is... Uh, maybe what I think is interesting about his story, even though he was sending all this money back to Haiti, he, he felt a level of shame from it because he got out. And so even his family would, would make little comments like, well, you, you, know, you don't know how bad it really is. And, and he would just feel bad about how good he had it. And in fact, there were times where, you know, he would struggle with some sort of trial and he would just feel guilty about it because, I, I mean, I got to America. Like, how could, how, how could I even complain about anything? And so he had these just levels of shame. Some of them were connected to his sin. Some of them were connected to even some good things that he was doing. By God's grace, Pierre, again, was a Christian. He had developed good relationships at church. And he approached one of the elders at church, one of the older men. And he, and he just kind of laid this out before him. And this elder really took him under his wing, was discipling him really pushing into some of these struggles. And kind of the way he went about it with Pierre is he really, you know, kind of tried to counteract lies with truth, right? You are acceptable. Jesus has accepted you. You've, you've believed upon him. You've asked him in your heart. You're a Christian now. You're in a right relationship with him. But, but then he found that he had to encourage Pierre to, to develop these, these new uh, habits, the, the, he had to have these tools where he could battle it on a daily basis. He believed it theoretically and theologically, but now he needed these tools. Listen, like, you know, the vast majority of us in our struggles with shame, and, and this is, I'm in this category. I, I haven't, like, memorized a Bible verse and then never have a struggle with shame again, okay? Maybe that, maybe that works for you. A Bible verse a day keeps the devil away. Maybe that works for you, okay? It hasn't been my experience, and I don't think that's the experience of most people. Pierre was in a similar way. 
He, he didn't have one meeting with an elder and then everything, you know, was rainbows and unicorns. He still struggled. But here's how he struggled. Is he, is he, uh, he went back to those truths and those tools. When, when those struggles came up again, he, he preached the gospel to himself again. I am acceptable. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of what he has done for me. And then he leaned on those tools of, okay, I need to faithfully follow him. I, I need to live out that theological truth. And I need to run to him. I, when, when, those, uh, when the claws of that shame would just sink uh, into him again, he would run back to Jesus. Jesus became his best friend in those moments. He, he leaned on that relationship with him. As he found over time, utilizing those tools, he found greater and greater freedom from that shame. Friends, may that be our experience. No matter your struggle with shame, know that Jesus died in order to free you from those struggles. Friends, we sing forever because he died so that we can get into heaven. Eternity awaits for those who trust in Christ. Amen? But that atonement also bleeds into Monday morning. It also bleeds into and blesses those thoughts that pop into your life. The way it blesses is to remind us that we have been accepted. The atonement has been made, burnt offering. Now we are accepted, and thus we can have communion with him, the peace offering. We can be right with him. Brothers and sisters, believe communion is a solution to shame. And as a result, commune with your best friend Jesus when those thoughts pop back into your mind and further develop those communion rhythms. Amen? There's something useful in Leviticus 3, isn't there? <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And even a passage like this that seems just contextually so far away from where we are. Lord, may we be a, a people that accepts the atonement that you've given us, accepts it to the degree that we walk in freedom, not in shame that we would live out that gospel, that the gospel would not just be a, a theoretical, theological category, but it would just fuel a thriving spiritual life where we truly believe that we're accepted. Even when someone rejects us or something rejects us, I pray that it wouldn't rob our joy based upon the fact that we're accepted by you. But Lord, may we be a people that commune with you in those moments. May we be a people that, that push into that relationship with you, that we would develop those rhythms of, of walking with you, not, not for legalistic purposes, not to earn favor with you, but to be transformed with you, by you, to, to have more of you, to walk in joy with you. May we be a people that commune with you. It's in Jesus' name.